This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. I am very excited. Today, I am joined by Seth Geltower. Seth has been in the real estate industry for 30 years. He was a practicing attorney for eight years in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. He spent the last 24 years at Bed Bath & Beyond. He started there as an attorney. He then ended up moving to the business side and he was the head of real estate there. So welcome to the show, Seth. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Excited. So Seth, tell us a little bit about you, who you are and what you're up to now. You gave you gave all my 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 deets in the uh, in the intro there, but uh, um, yeah, I I practice real estate law, um, doing retail, residential, uh, office development work, and had an opportunity to really get a few retail clients when I was practicing in the private practice back in 1992 um, through 90 four or five. And then uh, in early 96, I had the opportunity to move over to Bed Bath & Beyond to be a uh, real estate attorney there. And I got there in August. And in October, I handed in my resignation and said, I can't do this. It was just not fun. I felt like a first year lawyer. I was just, it wasn't a good, good experience. So um, the head of um, real estate and general counsel was the same position at the time said to me, please don't leave. I have big plans. There's a lot going on. Give me three months. And for some reason I trusted him and I stayed. And in January, that was in October or November. And then in January, he was uh, moved up to COO. He named a new general counsel and he asked me to help him coordinate the business side of the real estate. So I spent the next year traveling around the country with uh, a couple of my, um, we'll call them mentors and, and uh, learning the business side um, of site location. I understood the negotiating side from a legal side perspective, but learned a lot about the business um, side of coming up with deals and pricing them and figuring that out. And eventually over the next few years, I moved up to run the department and vice president of full real estate for Bed Bath and all of its subsidiaries and uh, had the opportunity to learn industrial space and office space, data center space, call center space, um, international stuff in Mexico and Canada. So it's, uh, it, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. Um, a lot of changes in the last 18 months at Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, all of senior management changed over. And in May, I uh, just uh, in the middle of pandemic and personal life and other things said, I want to spend the summer just decompressing um, not decomposing, but decompressing and, uh, hanging at the beach. And, uh, so I did that and here I am now, uh, looking for the next phase of my life. Fascinating story. You mentioned mentors, the, you hear that word thrown out a lot, you know, how instrumental were mentors in your professional career? Extremely. I, I have three 
specific mentors that that I refer to to this day. One is one of my best friends, uh, the first lawyer I worked with at uh, Wolf Block in Philadelphia, um, and we are still very close. I learned a tremendous amount about lawyering, not necessarily the specifics, but about being a good lawyer and time management and other things from him. And that was critical. Um, and then another lawyer, when I was practicing in New Jersey, um, really worked to own my skills of specific real estate things and was just very, she was very uh, influential in the way I approach things. And then when I got to Bed Bath and I uh, was asked to learn the business side, I worked with uh, Leonard Cohen, who was a uh, um, uh, an icon in the industry, He'd been in uh, the retail real estate world for many years as a broker and then uh, as a consultant to Arlen's department store. Um, he was partners with Milton Cooper at some point and was a consultant to Bed Bath & Beyond. And I traveled the country with him and learned an incredible amount about uh, certainly um, site quality and, and, and market analysis, but just watching him deal with landlords and deal with lawyers and put together programs. It was just, just uh, learning a tremendous amount. So, and up until he stayed with Bed Bath & Beyond up until last year, he passed away. Unfortunately, I was with him uh, right at the end because I was that close with him and uh, really went to him for guidance all the time. So mentoring to me was critical and uh, I try to pay it forward and uh, have done what I can with some of the younger people that I've come across. That's awesome. I love the pay it forward. Given where we are today, you know, what advice as a mentor would you give a young person entering the workforce? <laughs> um, there's nothing that's, that is too stupid to, to ask or comes across as stupid. If you, the more you ask, the more you learn, the more you have the ability to uh, engage in dialogue. And so um, that's, that's, that's my biggest advice to anybody that I talk to is nothing is too stupid to ask and you can't learn it unless you ask it. Sage advice. And so you've had this illustrious career and you're in a new phase now. What is next to look like for you? It's a great question. Um, as I said, I took the summer to decompress. I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of uh, advisory service. I'm dealing with a couple of uh, people that I've met over the years that are looking for ways to restructure their leases, um, both landlord side and tenant side. Um, you know, I, I pride myself on being creative and looking at things from all different angles. Um, I used to joke that at Bed Bath & Beyond, uh, the biggest criticism I got was that internally was that I was a landlord sympathizer. Uh, and then of course, landlords, you know, we were, we were relatively tough negotiators. Um, but uh, so I'm able to look at things from all different angles. And so I've been spending some time working on that. And uh, I know I don't, believe that I'm never going to say never will, but that right now I don't want to be back in the 
big corporate world. It's just not, uh, it's, I'm on to the next phase of something I want to do. So that's what I'm working through now. Yeah, I would agree on the, uh, that you definitely have a, a way to look at things in a creative format. I remember the mock negotiation you did with Brian Finnegan at the open air conference at ICSE on co-tenancy. And I thought that was interesting uh, to see both your guys' uh, perspectives on it. So I agree. So you've got to see everything going on in the pandemic, uh, I guess, from an outside looking in, being in the belly of the beast and now outside looking in. And now you're talking to probably more people, you know, casually and not in a formal manner. What's your take on what's going on in the market today? What are you seeing out there? It's an enigma. Um, it really is because the economy is super strong. Well, not the economy. The market is super strong. I don't know about the economy. I don't, uh, although I was an economics major in undergrad, and I, uh, I, I can't make any statement about the economy, so to speak, but we can see the, the, the market, the uh, confidence in big companies and the way the market is trading right now at a high is, uh, is very interesting. Um, because I still see a lot of people, we, we know people aren't shopping in stores. Um, Bed Bath & Beyond just had great numbers. They, they showed a uh, um, significant comp increase. Of course, that was on very negative comps last year, but it still was their same store sales were up, 90% of which was, uh, or it was generated a lot by a 90% increase in their online sales. Um, I think store sales were down about 18% in the quarter, but that shows me that people still will shop and are wanting to shop. So I'm confident that there's a future for, for retail. Um, we all know bricks and mortar is critical for, uh, even, even just for the just in time, um, or, or delivery, you know, same day, one hour, last hour, last mile, whatever you want to call it. Um, and you can see that in what I read that Bath did and Target is doing now. And, uh, you know, that, that they, they're doing two hour delivery from their stores, which I think is going to be uh, a huge plus for any retailer that can come up with that. Um, I'm concerned about the small stores, uh, the mom and pops, so to speak, because I think that. We've lost incentives in the last, the, the, the political climate has affected the incentives available for people right now. And SBA carry is over, um, I guess, as of October 1st. I was just on the phone with a landlord earlier today who said that they're counting another 15% decrease in October receivables from September because of the small shop, of, of the small shops, that 15% of their small shops would uh, reduce their payments, um, this month because they have to start paying interest on their SBA loans. So, um, you know, I guess post election, we'll see some things happening that can help with recovery, but, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, and certainly changes. I live, they spent the summer, a lot of the summer at the beach, we have a condo at the beach and I mean, so it's a building with, uh, 60 units in it. And they had to restructure the entire lobby to handle all the boxes that have been delivered. They actually built a, another room and it's not a doorman, beautiful, wonderful building, but they had, and it's not secure. 
but the boxes were overwhelming the entire mail or the whole lobby area. So they had to create an area for it. And I think that's pretty common. Um, it, it's a, I, just this morning, I saw huge, huge boxes from Wayfair and others of uh, furniture being delivered that were sitting in the lobby of a building. But two years ago, we would never have seen that. You know, it's, it's interesting that there's, there's certainly some stores that are going away and there's an increase in online, but we all know, and I know you know all too well, the economics as a retailer of profiting online is a real challenge. Uh, I, you know, there's very few digitally native and online only brands that are profiting. Given everything we know and that market share has opened up, I am surprised, you know, take a category like Toys R Us. They were like number 273 or 300 on Fortune 500, something like that. They had like $11.5 billion in sales, most of which was in stores. So they had the sales. People were going to stores and buying toys. They, they couldn't profit because they had all this debt. But I'm surprised that somebody, and, and it's challenging for a, a brick and mortar retailer today, given the cost. But I'm surprised there hasn't been some fund, some entrepreneur that said, given all the open market share, let's deploy a couple of hundred million dollars. We won't have legacy tech issues. We won't have all these other issues to take a physical chain and, and, and start to bring in e-commerce and just start in the new world order of what a physical store might look like in the future. Because it seems to me that based on what we're seeing in traffic today, you know, retail sales, brick and mortar, it, it, it's proven it's going to survive. You know, you look at the ones who are doing well, the, the, the big box Walmarts and Targets and the Home Depots and Lowe's. Uh, and, and I think there's an opportunity to thrive. And I am surprised that no one has put a check out to start something at scale like was done in the 90s, uh, given the, you know, call it a contrarian view. But that you're seeing digitally native brands start to open up stores. I'm surprised you're not seeing at scale the opposite, especially as you see things like with JCPenney and Sears and, you know, the, the, the groups that are closing stores, you know, that that hasn't happened. You know, maybe headline news is just so powerful uh, that it, you know, keeps people's dollars in their wallet or deploys it elsewhere. But what do you think? Do you think there's a place for some, if we, no one had the legacy tech infrastructure, existing issues to have to deal with debt issues, and someone had a pocket of cash of $500 million to go start a retail store chain today, start with physical, then, you know, the backside do e-commerce. What, do you think that is, uh, you know, there's opportunity there? Yes, I think there is opportunity. Certainly, Simon feels that there's opportunity in owning real in owning retail. They have the cash that a toy business would be an ideal thing for them to fill space and to you know to get the right people and the right the right merchandising. I think uh, you know someone like that or the partnerships that they've created to to do that could be interesting. Um, I guess there is one or two of the failed brands that they might be bringing back. I think I've read some articles about that. Um, 
I don't think it's do the physical first um, and worry about the tech a little later. I think you've got to do them hand in hand or really even have the tech in place. Although there's probably so many off the shelf things now that you can jump into that are probably 90% of what you need. Um, so yeah, I think it is opportunistic at this point and, and can be, um, but I think partnering with developers that have vacant space and maybe even vendors that, uh, manufacturers, you know, there might be a, a, a some type of a co-op that can be started to, to do something like that where everybody's got a piece to contribute rather than somebody coming up with a few hundred million dollars. Yeah, it's a good point because, you know, we are seeing traditional retailers continue to expand even in the face of this. And we are seeing the digitally native, at least they were pre-pandemic, opening up stores. And, you know, there's always the mom and pops opening stores. I just, I just come to like, is there someone sitting on the sidelines and going, hmm, all this market share, it's not all going online because online still only represents 14% of retail sales. I, you know. I, I can't imagine Walmart and Target have taken all of it. Maybe there's an opportunity for some stores uh, and to start a new chain. Uh, and we'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see with the brain power of America that's been sitting home for the last six months in three years, what they've created. Because I, uh, I think there'll be some interesting things that happen from people sitting and being able to strategize and decompress. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about what you just said. And from my experience at Bed Bath & Beyond, and I was, uh, you know, Bye Bye Baby is one of the subsidiaries of Bed Bath & Beyond. And when uh, Babies R Us, a subsidiary of Toys R Us, went away, uh, my first thought would have been that, that the their major competitor was Bye Bye Baby and that they would have seen a, a tremendous amount of business increase, which they did see a nice uplift. But, you know, you mentioned Target and Walmart and then the Internet, I would say probably got 75 percent of the business that they had, um, which was surprising to me. So so they may be absorbing more than we think they they are. Interesting. Well, I, that, that was anything else that you're seeing out there that. You, you think is interest that's interesting you every day there's something of interest that uh is 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 a uh, nice distraction from paying attention to the politics that we're in in the next four weeks so yeah for sure i've had that opportunity to really focus on things that i that i feel i have an opportunity to pay, perhaps have some control over and to uh be in my comfort zone of uh of, of my knowledge so i i do read a lot. Um, and there's still so much speculation and there's, that's, that's what I, I see. And you can, it's almost like politics because you can find things that, that are, are very aggressively predicting both directions. So, uh, and I guess as, as the basic economist that I was when I was in college, you know, you learn that once all economists agree, then you have to worry. That's, uh, kind of how I feel about the projection of, uh, just the future of retail. So if everybody were agreeing on something, we'd all be in trouble. So I just keep reading the, the, the differences and gleaning little bits from everything. I like that. I'm glad we're not at a place where they all agree. I, I agree with that. That's interesting. All right. So you've been involved in more deals than most. 
And you, you have a story about a store in Woodbridge, New Jersey, that's pretty interesting. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? Well, it's not as much interesting as just uh, ex- talk about experience and how, how things happen. And it's something I did in the last year. Again, I, I, I opened over a thousand stores. Um, wow. Experience at Bed Bath & Beyond. But, you know, relocating a store is always more complicated than opening a new store or a new market. Um, because you have timing issues of your existing store and, 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 uh, uh, you know, constant, perhaps, um, uh, a, a battle of whether you're negotiating because you're just trying to get a better deal or because the space, the new space is better. Um, so in Woodbridge, we, I had an opportunity. Real, real quick. Do you find in, in you're on the, the business side, it's harder to move a store that's underperforming to try to get it to perform or is it harder to move a store that's performing for fear that it, you move it and you, you know, if it's broke, don't, it's not broke. Don't fix it. Right. Much riskier, certainly to move a store that is um, performing well uh, and more frightening um, moving an underperforming store has its challenges. Um, and as you can see from just, you know, again, I'll look at Bed Bath because they just had their earnings call. They're going to close 200 stores because, that are underperforming and then maybe start up again in a year or two, uh, which is a strategy that that could make some sense. Um, but moving an underperforming store, if it's underperforming, but it's still making money, then it's usually a good thing to move it. And it's everybody's excited about it. If it's underperforming and not, and, the, and needs to be in the market for some reason, but it's never made any money. That's a, that's a very, very concerning and risky move. But again, if you have an A store that you want to move because you know, it can be an A plus volume store by being bigger or by having better access or uh, visibility, then uh, there's always some angst of taking a, let's say it's a $12 million store and moving it, hoping it's going to do 15. So Woodbridge is a perfect example of that. It's a, it was a 60,000 square foot Bed Bath & Beyond store that uh, actually was formerly a Bob's um, discount, uh, not the furniture store, Bob's uh, apparel store. They, uh, that Bed Bath had bought three stores back in 98, I think, or 99. And um, so these this store was 60,000 feet and had been renovated and negotiated and, and an opportunity came up to take a Toys R Us box actually, um, right around the corner, but different access, different visibility. And there was a lot of discussion about whether it was the right move or not. Um, time will tell. Uh, but what was unique was we had an exercise date coming up and at the same time, the landlord, who uh, I knew very well had a um, had another tenant with a lease that was far into negotiation. I happened to have known known the person, and we cut a deal very quickly from from the first conversation to getting a lease signed was uh, less than nineteen days, and that wouldn't have happened except for one relationships and both of us moving toward a common goal. Um, and controlling our attorneys and uh, making sure that our our professionals, the architects and uh, the store planning groups were working together very closely. It was not an easy 
uh, deal to make. In fact, it's uh, going to be a Bed Bath & Beyond and a Bye Bye Baby side by side. They're under construction now. And um, so there were there were lots of issues, but two full days locked in a conference room after we came to terms on a deal. Um, you know, with a lease that was very, very good. It wasn't something I would say as a model lease. I'm sure there were issues in there or things that, that we kind of just said, okay, we'll agree not to address it here. But for the most part, we just pushed it through and it can be done. And it's one of those things that, uh, you know, everybody always says it, it, there's a cycle and a life cycle of getting a deal done. If it's important enough, and I know you've done it too. We, we've talked about doing that, Chris. And I know you probably have sat down and got a, gone from term sheet to deal in less than two weeks if you really all plan to do it. Yeah, I, that is fascinating. And I think, you know, going pre-pandemic, I think one of the common things in just commercial real estate and, and not unique to retail real estate and commercial real estate was everybody, both users of space and landlords, deals take too long. And so th this is fascinating to me and even more fascinating. They're under construction now. I guess, you know, and there's so much to unpack from that story, you know, why doesn't that happen more? Why can't we seem to figure it out? It's it's that's the the, the multi million dollar question because that's exactly um, you know everybody everybody's got to put their fingerprints on things, um, and I I you know lawyers are there protecting us from mistakes that we've made in the past to repeat them. Uh, on both sides. So that always takes some time. And, you know, you want to have as few contingencies as possible. So you've got to do a lot of the due diligence to get through some of that time. You want to make sure that you're not going to have permitting issues and that you can actually have a, the, the floor load and be able to have the loading go the way you need to. And sometimes that takes studies that could take another 10 days or, or more to get done. So all of those things play into it. Um, and you have to, so, so, and time, nobody, it's never anybody's hundred percent focus. That, I think that's big. That's a big thing right there. I, I think the other thing is that, that you mentioned that on both sides getting to commitment, it feels today, it takes longer for both sides to get to commitment and say, we're, we're all going to do this. And I think in your story, to me, the reason that it happened so fast was you both got to commitment quickly. You, you said, we're going to pass on our option and we're going to do this. Here's the terms. You guys got to terms and boom, and you got to a commitment quickly. And then all the other stuff, the, the, the A&E engineering, truck studies, lawyers, to some extent, you can control that. A lot of that is just dollars and focus, but getting to commitment and the, you know, are both sides ready to move forward to, to me is really the piece. What happens, I think, on the on the tail end of why things take long is because if both sides agree on commitment, then it's like, yeah, it, it'll get done. Go through the everybody's got their processes. You, you, you guys circumvented that by just saying it has to get done now. And as you said, you controlled the attorneys and the A&E and all that. But I think the key is getting to commitment quickly. And I, I guess, you know, 
that will be the multi-million dollar question of how to get organizations, especially I, I think it's a call to action for everyone out there because our industry is moving so quickly compared to what it did previously. Things are changing. The consumer's changing and we have to get to commitment quickly or we're going to, we're going to all struggle to move to the next step or things are just going to, you know, that ebb and flow of they start, they die, they start, they die, they start, they die. And so you, you said, you said it very clearly. Um, and, 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 uh, Lynn Cohn, who I mentioned earlier is my mentor, probably the first year I was with him taught me that time wounds all deals. That was, uh, uh, you know, really profound. And you think about it and just anytime there's, there's opportunity for things to go wrong in that time frame, it's going to happen. And so you've got to just be focused and get to the commitment and then make sure from the commitment to the documentation, that's where things fall apart. And if there's a, uh, a hyper focus and it's hard to do on when you have, you know, 40 balls in the air, but if, you know, you, you, you come up with a schedule, you know, and that's what we've done. I think that's what we ended up doing. We actually sat down on the day one and said, okay, here's our schedule. We're going to have these things done by these days. And that really made a big difference. The, what got you all over the hump that it was this successful store and you said, you know what, we're going to pass on our option and we're going to take this. We're going to take the option. That was the issue is that we had to have this fully signed and negotiated by our option date. Otherwise we were going to probably have to renew, renew. And that was the pressure on our side. And their pressure was that the supermarket was trying to do a deal there. So we both had a reason to push this in the timeframe. So, um, but that we decided to not stay. Uh, it was clearly an oversized store. Um, to, to the new place was a little bit smaller than the whole big one that we were in now or that they we were in. And the, the motivation was to do an open store renovation and split it up and make it two stores was so complicated. Um, and that as the company was in significant transition or is in significant transition, the opportunity to open two brand new stores with new concept looking was uh, in New Jersey, not far from their corporate headquarters was very attractive. Very cool. Very cool story. This has been awesome. Uh, There's a topic though, that you, you talk about a lot that I forgot in the beginning that I want to just talk about for three minutes, which is one of the issues you've brought up a lot to me over the years is with the shift of to online and sales and how do retailers comp store managers uh, is something that you've talked about a lot because, you know, the, the store manager is so influential in how that store does. I think it's an interesting topic because we don't talk about it enough in our industry. Well, my, 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 my topic is really how do you measure success of a store uh, of a retail store? And, and, and it screamed at me when I was listening to the earnings call from Bed Bath the other day, where they talked about their Bopis curbside pickup and all those things and said very clearly, those numbers are in their online numbers. They're not in the store numbers. Um, and, and so a customer orders online, it's through the online platform, but the store's fulfilling, they go to the store and pick it up, but it's not shown in the store comps. It's shown in online comps. 
So as a company, their comps are up, but they moved it out of the store. So all of a sudden, this store, when you look at its four wall EBITDA, isn't getting the benefit of those things. And so the store manager screaming, saying, hey, I'm using my employees to stock the shelf, then to pull the items from the shelf and to wrap it and ring it and have it ready for somebody to come and pick up. And then you're giving the credit to the guys that are sitting in, you know, whether it's New Jersey or India online, you know, creating the, the, this platform. So help because otherwise you're going to close every store. And I have been pushing hard, even with ICSE and, and other organizations to come up with a standard that could make sense of not looking at sales per square foot of a store to determine what its success is. And I often say, let's equate it to how a store manager is compensated or bonused, and they have to include it one way or another. And there's been so many different proposals, things like including all sales or 70% of all sales within 10 miles of a store or, you know, whatever, whatever metric you want to use, but it's got to change. And the way for it to change is for tenants, landlords, lenders, and even analysts, retail and read analysts or, or uh, uh, landlord analysts to sit down in a room and, and come up with something that they can be comfortable with other than sales per square foot, because that's just not really relevant anymore. I don't know the answer, but I'm trying to create a uh, focus group to come up with this kind of thing. Well, uh, if you, if you get that focus group, let me know. I'd love to help. So on the number two on the list. <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the, the, the last part of our show. We call it retail wisdom. I've got three questions for you. You ready, Seth? What is your best piece of commercial real estate advice? I said it before, and that is, um, well, let's just say, I know I'm not going to, I was going to say, I said it before and I just ask a lot of questions, but um, I think it's understand the other side, understand everybody's perspective. It's great advice. Second question. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead? I was a big Geno's kid when I was, when, when uh, that's where I used to have to go with my parents. And I remember their French fries being the best, but uh, that's probably very local. And I don't know if most people would, would know that one, but. Uh, that's all right. That's a good one. Yeah. Explain to everyone what Geno's is. Geno's was a, uh, was a fast food. It was like uh, Burger King. It was Burger King, McDonald's and Geno's in New Jersey. And I don't know where else they were, but uh, that was, that was the one we had. The first one that hit Rockaway Township when I was growing up was Geno's before Burger King McDonald's. Awesome. Last question. I actually, I went to Amazon's website and I did some Googling of the top 10 hottest products on Amazon. Right now, the number two product, according to some uh, Money Talks news, is the Under Armour Adult Charged Cotton 2.0 Socks. They are crew socks. Six pairs. What does that retail for? I, I just, just bought them, literally. So six pair, if it's the under, I think it was the Under Armour ones that I just bought. Was it retailing for, it was a Best Buy for, uh, in Runner's World or something for the value. And I think it was $12. 
you're, you're very close on Amazon. It's 14.99, but maybe on Runners World it was 12. That's really good. Uh, very close. Thank you for playing. So why, why is every? So you just ordered them. So why is everyone ordering these socks? I don't know. I just know that my so- I, I never have enough socks, and we 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 tend to do uh, laundry less when it's just the two of us. So for some reason, socks we go through two or three pair a day when I'm now that I have the Peloton and doing other things. So I'm out running and walking. So I never have enough. So I just ordered twelve pair of socks like yesterday. Interesting. And I and I took the Amazon. Uh, delivery offer. So I got a $2 credit. Maybe that's why I thought $12. Maybe. Credit. Because I am delivering it on my Thursday is my Amazon day. Maybe there's an opportunity for a new specialty retailer specializing in socks. And on, <laughs> and on that, that note, thanks, Seth. This has been awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.